Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to get these doggies. They're out of the pan. We got to get them back in the in pan. In the pan, in sure. In the pan. We got to get them over to the last podcast network, Country Jamboree, June 18th, 2022, at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Come and check out all the shows that you love on the last podcast network. We'll be in front of you in our meat space, and we cannot wait to entertain you and have a great time. But for those of you that can't come in person, Go to momenthouse.com slash LPOTL and buy your live stream ticket. Yes, yes, you too can watch us perform our jangly country jamboree from the nudity of your couch. Absolutely fantastic. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you so much for your support. And we are so excited to be at the OG Grand Old Opry. Yeah! Hail yourselves! Hey everybody, it's Miss Sexy Pac, Miss Pac-Man here, and I do declare that I am a wizard named Holden McNeely. That's how Miss Pac-Man talks, right, Jake? I got a pocket full of quarters and I'm heading to All the arcade. Right. Boom, 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 yes, boom, you two have been I thrilled. don't have a lot of money, but I'm bringing everything I made. Boom, boom, I'd never boom, heard this boom, song boom, before. You're talking about top ten I got a on hit. my finger and my shoulder's hurting too. Boom, 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 <laughs> boom, 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 boom. I'm going to eat them all up just as soon as they turn blue. Because oh, I got right. Pac-Man fever. Pac-Man Pac fever. <laughs> Driving me crazy. Driving I got Pac-Man fever. Oh, I'm dying from Pac-Man <laughs> fever. Hey, it's me, Jake, Miss Pac-Man. <laughs> and I think you've got a beard I could live in, if you know what I mean. <laughs> God damn it, feminist icon Ms. Pac-Man. Stop <laughs> trying to jump my freaking bones. <laughs> I'm <laughs> suffering from Pac-Man fever over here. My <laughs> uncle died last week. Oh, my God. Everybody's died from Pac-Man <laughs> fever, the original COVID. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the stream, uh, to the stream, to the podcast. Whatever. I don't know what I do. The anymore. point is you're in front of your computer yelling, and it's all the <laughs> yeah. same job. As my as the nanny puts it when I'm working and she's overhearing me, my screaming is what she calls it. She's like, when you're doing your screaming. Which is a lot of fun. Welcome everybody. It's Pac-Man. Oh my God. I have a synopsis as if you need it. Pac-Man, the maze action video game developed and released by Namco in 1980, which was created by Toro. 
Iwatani, he was visiting a, a hedge maze behind his house. And he noticed there were many pellets on the ground, and actually they were pills. And he got fucked oh up. My God. And he started seeing crazy shit. And uh, that's Holden, where we got to where we got. Episode over. It's done. Can I tell you, I was a stand-up comedian for a very significant part of my life. Of course you were. We all know this. And one of my fucking killer bits, like I'm talking A material from like 2007 to like 2012 was a fucking whole chunk about Pac-Man. <laughs> And the entire premise is so fu- it's like the exact same overdone joke as like, oh, you know, Mario's on mushrooms, right? Like right. it was literally just, uh, you know, pitching the game of Pac-Man. What did that go like? It was just being like, you're in a pitch black maze and there's you just eat and ghosts murder you and you never <laughs> win. You just run and fun. eat till you die. <laughs> Actually reading about the cons- like the consideration and revolutionary thought process that went into actually constructing the game of Pac-Man has ruined my hack joke forever. Not the not the fact that it's an overdone <laughs> premise that's been done to death. But yeah, and the part I didn't appreciate was we go into that whole thing about Pac-Man can't make jokes anymore because Miss <laughs> Pac-Man's always coming after Pac-Man on social media. You were ahead of your time, Jake. I mean, it was really uh, some amazing stuff you were going on. I mean, uh, there was about. that one time someone tackled me on stage because they were fans of Rally X. And that was, you know, I there, Twitter wasn't as big then, so it didn't make the headlines. <laughs> but it's yeah. Pac-Man is a friend. This is um, such a weird. Yeah. At once, it's like parallel to a lot of other episodes we did. The story of Namco is very much similar to the story of Sega and how these like j- post-war Japanese electromechanical amusement companies adapted to the modern age. Uh, It's a story about like individual video game developers with a visionary idea uh, getting helped along by business savvy people in Japan and America. It's a story of, uh, you know, things that video games are still struggling with in terms of Mm. demographics, in terms of uh, broad appeal, in terms of legitimacy. And weirdly enough, just this simple yellow character, just this like ubiquitous little guy that is at once like as well known as Sonic and Mario and Mickey Mouse, but also kind of not like C tier as a video game character on top of everything else. It's this very weird push and pull where Pac-Man's name has been attached to a lot of weird ass like games uh, after his initial heights. Yeah. And yet like with his inclusion in Smash Brothers and with uh, all the... Uh, championship editions. Like, the fact is, there's a reason why this game has been released for every single compute-capable device in the history of mankind. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, I mean, there's just... Pac-Man is, especially for people like us born in... You know, I was born in 1982, the year that Miss Pac-Man hit the streets. Um, Pac-Man truly is ubiquitous, especially for a lover of video games, but just all people. I mean, everyone at this point has encountered a Pac-Man cabinet or table at some establishment. It is just... Everywhere, constantly, all at once. And you could kind of say the same for, like, Mario. But, yeah, you're right. There's something that sets Pac-Man apart. Pac-Man is almost, like, more an icon of, you know, video games as a whole, especially the original 
you know, arcade video game movement that happened. And then it's so funny because like Pac-Man is both the best and worst, right? Because you have like the original, I think Ms. Pac-Man from, from what I have, and I'm sure you'll probably hear me read this in my notes later, but Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man still holds the record for highest selling uh, arcade game, I believe, mm-hmm. arcade game cabinet uh, of all time. Second only to Pac-Man. So, so it is, they are the two top dogs. I mean, that is just how everywhere that game has always been and still manages to remain. And, uh, yet at the same time, um, you know, you, it's, it's, uh, got that horrible Atari release is pretty much one of the two between that and ET on Atari. It killed the home console business, uh, for, you know, and that's more Atari's fault and a guy fault and a guy named Todd. And we'll talk about Todd later, Todd. Thanks, Todd. Uh, and I'm sorry, it's more Atari making Todd make a game in six months. That was horrible and not able to actually run on a, uh, Atari, but then also as it's evolved, not really knowing quite what to do with the character or or really change anything. And at the end of the day, it always comes back to that original game feel and, and original basic concept. And, you know, the best thing to do is just to iterate on that original concept. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the, the more recent time I had a lot of fun with Pac-Man was like the four-player Pac-Man set up that they had for uh, at Barcade in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And uh, a whole crew of us got on, and when you're playing it all together, because everyone fucking knows how to play Pac-Man, mm-hmm. it is a wonderful, joyous experience. It's bizarre. It's just like, it is something that has always existed for me, and just feels so foundational to everything I love that uh, I therefore have to love it. There's two sides to Pac-Man. Um Actually, Pac-Man yeah, is I like a the land. Dark, gritty, I like the dark, gritty side, too. I like yeah. the side where he wears a cape and he goes around punching thugs. Well, there was actually <laughs> uh, a 1997 prototype game that was uh, going to be the first 3D Pac-Man game. Yeah, Shadow the Pac-Man. We, I it know actually it well. involved a, uh, like a runaway teen uh, getting sucked into the world of Pac-Man because he was forcefully bullied from playing any of the cool new games. But we'll maybe we'll get into that. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Probably not. There's <laughs> Namco, and then there's Bally Midway. There's uh, Pac-Man mm-hmm. the character, and then Pac-Man uh, the actual game. The 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 this simple yet addictive yet uh, endlessly complex uh, kind of thing that like. Is it was basically the the Minecraft of its time, the Tetris of its of its time, when so much of video games was hitting just such a narrow band of experience. This game that did not have a shoot button, this game where you know the the enemies weren't like evil aliens or or giant robots, but just like cute yeah. little pink and cyan ghosts. No tanks or missiles. And that's the funny thing. It's a, the kind of eye-opener. This is really the designer of Pac-Man, Toro Iwatani, and I'll iterate on this a little bit more uh, in a little bit, but his whole thing was he was like, all these games are kind of made for like a male audience. It's all like war game stuff, and I want to make something for a broader audience and specifically for women. And it's so funny that even back in the... 70s like they had we've just gone over pong they had just yeah. like pong had made it past the post and already it's like they, we've <laughs> always been grappling with this weird like dude issue with video games and and it's it's kind of astounding that even back then it was like god 
we're always murdering people in these war games. Like, we need to create other experiences for what, you know, not just like dude bros, you know? And it's just, I love it. I, it, 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 it makes things make a lot more sense, honestly, in the history of everything, right? Mm-hmm. But just also, as we get into Miss Pac Man, we're going to learn a lot about. Um, expansion kits and uh, things of that nature that were made for other arcade games and how a scrappy crew of MIT dropouts fucking got bandied together and somehow managed to convince Midway and Namco to let them make the sequel to Pac-Man, which was fucking monstrously successful at that time Mm -hmm. as well. And honestly, if you were asking me, I'd say I'm more of a Miss Pac-Man guy. Like if I had the two cabinets in front of me, I think I'm going to... Rock out on some Miss Pac-Man, and that one's the one I played the most in my day. And to know that it doesn't even like share the well, I was I was gonna say it doesn't share the DNA, but it literally shares the DNA yeah. of the the original motherboard. But it doesn't share the the um, creative hand of Pac-Man's creator. It it just a group of dudes in America well, that love the and that's how much America has like adopted Pac-Man. It's almost like. It feels American, like Pac-Man in a lot of ways feels American. It feels like, it feels like, you know, hamburgers and Coca-Cola. You know what I mean? Well, there's a reason for that because just this like crazy period, this crazy cultural back and forth between Japan and America, two uh, deadly enemies had a nuclear oopsie doodle in the 1940s and then were just inexorably linked together economically, socially, and through just trade that you know it's it's american culture and the idea of the cartoon mascot like bled into the design of pac-man uh it then like circles back and becomes this like uh cartoon hero in america and like it's it loses its japanese-ness in a, in a lot of ways and to the point where it's yeah no it's it's to talk about pac-man is to talk about everything holden um i just i just think it's an aesthetically pleasing character. I think it's a uh, timeless gameplay loop. I think the fact that this character has remained uh, in its own weird little island of video game history separate from the heavy hitters like Sony, Nintendo, and Sega make it very interesting. And, you know, for Gen Xers, for the uh, veterans of the arcade generation, Pac-Man is like their Mario. Pac-Man is their... Uh, Bugs Bunny, Pac-Man was their avatar of their childhood. And now you literally can't have any video game related media without acknowledging Pac-Man. You know, he shows up in Wreck-It Ralph. He shows up in the critically acclaimed Adam Sandler movie Pixels. He shows up. Oh, my God. Yes, uh, you know, course. any you uh, GameStop or Hot Topic that has a shelf of video game bric-a-brac. To the point where I wonder how the modern generation of gamers even feels about pac-man or thinks about pac-man have they played pac-man you know i think like, it's i think it's there with tetris i think it is yeah. an immortal uh state of play that uh either on your phone playing pac-man 256 or as a google doodle one day you're playing rounds and rounds of pac-man or uh you know you read a good review on your favorite uh video game website and you pick up pac-man championship edition Pac-Man keeps resurfacing and keeps uh, people entertained because the the simplicity, the 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 aesthetics, everything about it just feels good to play, and they really cracked a code. 
Hey, it's me, feminist icon, Miss Pac-Man, and I just want to say to you two hunks over there, Jake, I will help you cheat on your fiance. I love your beauty mark and gigantic <laughs> red bow on your head. That's how I know you're a lady. At first, I'd be like, oh, I don't know if this weird yellow sphere is a lady, but then I see the bow on her head. I will say it was supposed to be long red hair, and I got to actually we'll see talk the original about the design. Crazy odd- oh, hold on. But I- they actually, that was a memory issue. They had to change it to a bow. All right, he's got a big book that says Pac-Man on it with a big picture of Pac-Man. This ice birth of an icon, it says at the dollars. If you, for some Good reason, Lord. want to skip this entire free episode of informational content, pay skip $50 it, you know you want to. and get a heavy book <laughs> that you can't take with you. Pac-Man Birth of an Icon by Arjan Terpestra and Tim Lapatino is an incredible resource with tons of interviews and amazing behind-the-scenes uh, documents from the entire history of the franchise. It's an And I just also want to say that uh, on, uh, even though we, of course, have Miss Pac-Man's remarks from earlier, uh, The Wizard and the Bruiser doesn't contone uh, any sort of uh, infidelity in relationships. What a weird <laughs> thing to officially state. <laughs> Miss Pac-Man's trying to get you to do, you know what I mean? It's very upsetting. All right, let's get into it, ladies and gentlemen, to talk about the history of Pac-Man. Let's talk about the history of something I don't think we've really gotten to get into too much. It's similar to a lot of other Japanese developer, publisher, video game companies for sure. But yeah, Namco. Let's talk about the history of Namco. Oh, the Nakamura Manufacturing Company, of course. Yes, Messiah Nakamura's father's business was in shotgun repair. Yeah, interesting. Uh, there was like a. It was literally a kiosk in a department store where you bought and handed in your guns to be repaired, right next to like the boys' pajamas <laughs> and dinner table sets. Like it's still <laughs> bizarre to me. Uh, but unfortunately, post-war Japan had a little bit of an oopsie doodle when they were like, hey, we're a sensible country and we would like to have less guns around. So his father uh, ends up switching to pop, pop cork guns. And this really catches his uh, son's eye, uh, Matsaya uh, Nakamura. And be, therefore, Nakamura becomes interested in toys for children. He, during World War II, was a shipbuilder. But he was having trouble finding work, and so with $12,000, he purchases two hand-cranked rocking horses. This is back in 1955. He installs them on a roof garden of a department store, and the children love these little fuckers. A few years later, Nakamura expanded his business with more locations. It was even hired to install a full-on rooftop amusement park for a chain of stores, which included the horsies, along with a goldfish scooping pond, a picture viewing machine, and a train for kids called the Roadway Race. Nakamura soon opened up his own factory to build rides for kids himself based on popular anime shows at the time, as well as Disney characters. He makes a a partnership with the Walt Disney Company. And uh, he also starts manufacturing electromechanical games, the first one being a submarine warfare shooting gallery called Torpedo Launcher in 1965. So, number one... Post-war Japan already swinging. Uh, Nakamura really notices that like these kind of public amusement spaces that were once commonplace pre- in pre-war Japan, uh, you know, people finally have rebuilt enough that they can actually have spare money to you know to amuse themselves with. And he really helps foster that thing. You know, the game centers that we think of. Uh, the all the little amusement areas that you associate with Japan was were coming into their own at this time. Uh, also, when you hear stuff like electromechanical games, 
These are convoluted contraptions where, you know, there'd be a driving game where you uh, turned a steering wheel to move a like physical wooden carved car in front of a projected film of cars racing. There's like mm-hmm. uh, rudimentary games that were like a, a popular one that Namco made very early on was called Shoot Away, where it was basically a early light gun game where a single point of light was projected on a screen and you shot at it with a photoreceptor gun that would flash light. And if it registered the light from the screen, none of this was digital. All of this was done with electrical relays and mechanical parts. So like, even though everything, even though it's, you know, it sounds like video games are already alive and well, these are like clunky, hard to repair, finicky, tons of moving parts. And uh, companies like Sega got their start with this kind of stuff. Uh, You know, we talked about this in our pinball episode. The coin-operated amusements, everything from jukeboxes to pachinko machines to pinball to these kind of electromechanical games, were all kind of a booming industry in America and Japan at this time. So in 1971, the name Namco is introduced as a brand for these machines. And then you can cut to 1973, and this American game company called Atari is becoming so successful that they decide to establish divisions in Asia, including Japan, and Nakamura is approached a year later to become the distributor of Atari games uh, over there as Atari Japan. This proved to be a financial disaster. as Of course, as we know, Atari... Um, uh, not the best with the business minded. This is an early indication of that. Atari Japan president ends up just stopping showing up from work entirely, leading to the sale of Atari Japan to Nakamura, which uh, is which made them one of the country's largest arcade game companies. At first, distributing Atari games through the seventies, and they even established Namco America at the end of the decade. This is around when Namco decides to put a lot more effort into making their own video games. And that first game that they would end up making was a game called GB, released in late 1978, which was a video pinball game with elements of block breaker games. This game was designed by a new hire, and his name was Toru Iwatani. So Toru Iwatani and Namco in general have a very interesting relationship uh, Toro Iwatani uh, moved around a lot as his, as a kid. His father worked for a uh, broadcasting studios as an engineer, and that forced him to move around a lot. Uh, he literally was born in Tokyo r- while the country was still rebuilding itself after the war. He then literally went to the woods in northwest Japan. Uh, according to the oh, Pac-Man book. behind his house indeed, Jake. He found enjoyment, according to the book, he found enjoyment <laughs> in outdoor activities like hiking, catching crawfish, and, and playing pranks with his friends, building igloos, and- caves. No mention possibly. of caves. Okay, interesting. But when his father moved back to Tokyo a decade later, he found a city that had completely changed uh, since his absence. There was a uh, burgeoning political student movement that he was a part of. Student unions were holding regular strikes. He was becoming obsessed with uh, pinball, just genuinely escaping to the world of pinball. And uh, in 1970, he enrolled at Tokyo Metropolitan University uh, and uh, joined an engineering program shortly after that. He really just escaped into a world of Western hard rock cafes and pinball machines. And so when it was time after his uh, high school to apply to jobs, or I'm sorry, after university to apply for jobs, 
uh, he looked at different, uh, you know, listings and saw an ad for Namco that promised the creation of play. And he found that very exciting. Yeah, that is a great, that, that would make so much sense for him to be drawn this because that is what he is at the, at the end of the day. He's not a computer programmer. He's not even a huge video game enthusiast necessarily, but he is a creative, just a genuine through and through creative. He said, I'm interested in creating images that communicate with people. A computer is not the only medium that uses images. I could use the movies or television or any other visual medium. It just so happens I use the computer. I had no special training at all. I am completely self-taught. I don't fit the mold of a visual arts designer or a graphic designer. I just had a strong concept about what a game designer is. Someone who designs projects to make people happy. That's his purpose. It's important for you to understand that I'm not a programmer. I developed the specs and designed the features, but other people who worked with me wrote the program. And I think that this is the most fundamental thing to his creative process, creating something that will make people happy. And this is really why Pac-Man would rise above so many of the other games of the time. He wanted simplicity. He wanted color. He wanted uh, he wanted joy in just the basic concept of the game. Just this eating thing, you know? It's just not... I mean, yes, he's threatened by these ghosts, but at the same time, it's still very simple, and he gets to fight back. And it's just this very simple, wonderful, joyous premise that he's working off of. So one anecdote I really enjoy is um, the book talks about how Namco actually had a tradition of kind of not really bothering with entrance exams, or if they did them, they were kind of ancillary, and it was the one-on-one interview with Nakamura, the president, that would like determine your role in the company and whether or not you'd be brought on board. And so, you know, Iwatani was this dreamer. He was this kind of creative guy, and that impressed them, and they brought him in, Um It was actually during one of the uh, orientation kind of parties, kind of an office gathering that a senior went up to him and was like, so what are you, you know, what are you going to do here at Namco? That Iwatani was like, well, bro, first things on the menu, I got to make me a pinball game. I love pinball games to which the (laughs) senior uh, had the solemn duty of informing him. We don't make pinball games, which is actually uh, very interesting considering GB (laughs) was this pinball hybrid yes. game with bumpers and spinners and all these well, other things. Well, that's how we got away with it. He was like, well, what? What can, how can I make a pinball game without making a pinball game? Because there were just patent issues involved in that sort of thing that they just were not willing to get their hands dirty with at that time. Check out our pinball episode if you want to hear more about the patent history of pinball tables. But yeah, they would have to kind of get into businesses they didn't want to mess with, whereas uh, they could work in the video game space. And so, yeah, that's why he turns to GB for sure. Another thing about uh, kind of this whole process is that... um, you mentioned patents. Intellectual property was a gigantic problem for early video game manufacturers. It's you know commonplace now uh, that cop. <laughs> wow! Edit all this out. I'm choking on my Ooh. own spittle. Oh my god! The spit is flying everywhere. Oh, uh, it's like a Doctor Who episode. It's very. It's like light body horror. Anyway, it's like yeah, he just got ectoplasm all over him. I think it's yeah, it's disturbing at best. All right, go on. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Some of Iwatani's early uh, jobs within the company was to do reconnaissance on factories that were making knockoff Atari games because Namco still had the license there. Um, he recalls getting tickets to see the Allman Brothers and uh, ended up getting arrested by security guards outside one of these pirate factories for trespassing. Uh, he was supposed to meet his then girlfriend at the concert. He had to stand her up because he was in jail and they later broke up. Another time he is he was uh, scouting out another pirate factory and uh, Yakuza's blocked his car in on both sides, made him roll down his window and basically said that if he kept snooping around, they would murder him. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> but GB came out and it was honestly uh, not a big hit. It was no. by this point, the Taito Corporation had blown up the entire Japanese video game landscape with Space Invaders, which had dynamic enemies and sh- shooting and all these like very high intensity gameplay things were the point where uh, some arcades basically converted themselves into what they called invader rooms, where they were just Space Invader cabinets and cocktail games, and people would sell drinks and smoke cigarettes. It was really just like the overarching, uh, just any video game that wasn't Space space Invaders was worthless. So GB, its sequel, Bombie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, except for uh, sports games, based on the success of Pong. So again, another male-centric kind of male-dominated uh, genre, right? So those are your two options at the time. And Iwatani is seeing this, and is just feeling like there's something missing in this space. Is It's all geared toward a male audience. There's just, yeah, it's all kind of got this, like, dark, grittier thing going on. Even in this simple way, it's still doing it. Iwatani said there were no games that everyone could play, and especially none for women. I wanted to come up with a, quote, comical game women could enjoy. He also said, first of all, the kanji word taberu to eat came to mind. Game design, you see, often begins with words. I started playing with the word making sketches in my notebook. Um, of course, the story he loves to tell is about uh, going out to lunch one time and ordering a whole pizza because he's so hungry. And then uh, after eating one wedge, uh, one slice of pizza, he uh, sees the Pac-Man shape before him and, and uh, starts just getting ideas from that. This story is like, as old as reporting on video games itself. It it was first reported in an interview in 1985. He talks about getting, you know, taking a slice of pizza and getting the idea from Pac-Man from that. He repeats it in 1988 in uh, Denshi Yugi Taizen. Um, He's telling it over and over again. It's so easy to, you know, because once Pac-Man is in your imagination, you literally can't look at a pizza without thinking about him. Um, In the year 2000, however, uh, there was a book released in Japan called Game Maestros, Volume 1, Producers and Directors, and uh, a video game journalist asked him, uh, you know, hey, so is this story real? And Iwatani responds, it's already passed into legend. So I'm going to stick with it. I took a slice out of a pizza and saw Pac-Man. And he even admits, he has afterwards even admitted, this story is half true. I think what he was doing is just playing in a creative space. Just because the guy gives a show, 
what kind of a guy he is. That he's just he's always kind of just looking at things a little differently and coming up with ideas based on them. And I think it all just bled into each other. Iwatani said the Japanese in Japanese, the character for mouth, Coochie, please, Jake, don't come on. We don't have to laugh at these things. I mean, I mean, I know how mouth. it's spelled, so I don't I'm not laughing at it. <laughs> In Japanese, the character of her mouth, Kuchi, is a square shape. It's not circular like the pizza, but I decided to round it out. There was the temptation to make the Pac-Man shape less simple. While I was designing this game, someone suggested we add eyes. But we eventually discarded that idea because once we added eyes, we would want to add glasses and maybe a mustache. There would just be no end to it. Uh, and uh, it's all I mean I feel like just in Japan in general it's all about the wordplay you know I mean most anime shows mangas we cover have some variation of wordplay Dragon Ball Z is a great example it's everybody's uh, food names and everything Uh, uh, but yes uh, he said the Japanese have a slang word paku paku they use to describe the motion of the mouth opening and closing while one eats the name Pac-Man came from that word even though I will say it was initially released, correct, Jake, as Puckman. Yes, the Japanese name and the name that appears on all Japanese cabinets originally released is Puckman. P-U-C-K man. We'll get into how that got changed when we get into Midway's contribution. But yes, uh, the character they came up with is Puckman. Um, the initial idea that was just revolved around like, okay, so here's this guy. Uh, he's gathering food. Uh, oh, that's boring. Okay, he's in a maze gathering food. Okay, that's uh, that's boring. Uh, let's add bonus items like cherries and apples, like in uh, American pinball machine, or I'm sorry, American slot machines, bells and keys and fucked, uh, I don't know, a Galaxian. People like Galaxians. Galaxian was a <laughs> game uh, at a full color improvement on Space Invaders that was kind of really making waves within Namco. Kind of their like breakout hit in terms of video games after GB kind of went uh, nowhere. And that did add, it used an RGB color display that made the sprites on game screens really pop. I mean, so immediately. Ooh, that's the scrolling on that Starfield, man. It's like, (laughs) it's like HD. For 1970. But for pa- and for Pac-Man, though, I mean, you know, we don't know Galaxian quite so well, but it really was such a big deal to have the those colors be so pop- so very much popping and unique on the ghosts as well as on, on Pac-Man. I think it really drew the eye in the arcade to the to the cabinet. Plus the fact that the uh, aliens would break formation and kind of swoop down at you uh, in these parabolic curves, basically... You know, it's a chicken and egg thing, but they move like uh, TIE fighters in Star Wars. You know, like the, the sci-fi world was kind of uh, growing in their in in popularity. And Galaxian really captured that like space dogfight vibe way more than Space Invaders did. Uh, so we got food. We got a maze. We got a yellow guy. Uh, but we need an enemy. Um, Iwatani was influenced by a popular manga known as mm-hmm. Little Ghost Kutaro, who has that same mm-hmm. kind of bell-shaped ghost kind of, uh, sh- uh, you know, cartoon shape that we're all familiar with. Uh, Kutaro has big, big old lips, some real DSLs, if I had to, if I'm not going to lie. All right, Jake, please. The word is Gucci now. Come on. <laughs> Iwatani specifically wanted these characters not to be threatening, but to be cute. And so uh, the decision... I have, I have, a, oh, I have okay. a quote right here for you. 
but I felt it would be too stressful for a human being like Pac-Man to be continually surrounded and hunted down. So I created the monster's invasions to come in waves. They'd attack, and then they'd retreat. As time went by, they would regroup, attack, and disperse again. It seemed more natural than having constant attack. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Okay. This is... Okay, we're getting into it. We're getting into it. Oh, the thing I want to talk about the ghost designs was that Iwatani was specifically inspired by the uh, popularity of Sanrio and Hello Kitty in choosing the ghost colors. Because we have Pinky, we have Blinky, we have Inky, we have Clyde, all of them in these kind of friendly pastel colors that do not kind of uh, uh, lend itself to the kind of threatening aura that you associate with a video game enemy. Um, Nakamura was shown a early prototype of Pac-Man which, you know, they had a year to work on this thing. They were iterating and iterating and tweaking settings nonstop. And it was a team of like 10 people. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, Nakamura was initially confused by the different enemies and their patterns. And he was like, wait, which one's the enemy? Which one's the bad guy? I don't like this. Make them all red. And Iwatani, again, Japanese corporate culture, couldn't really tell him no so Iwatani turned around and took a survey of 50 Namco employees and came back and said, we tried both versions. Uh, 50 people enjoyed the colored versions. Zero people liked the all red version. Can we please keep it? And Nakamura was like, okay. Now, what you're talking about with the waves, with the, uh, there's, in, there's three distinct states that the ghosts go through. There is chase mode, where the ghosts are all converging on Pac-Man. There's flee mode, where Pac-Man gets the power pellet and they try to avoid him. And then there's scatter mode, where the ghosts all kind of just stop pursuing Pac-Man and make their way back to uh, their separate corners. And this creates an amazing kind of effect where you feel the the walls closing in on you. You see uh, the characters kind of making this pincer maneuver and you're like, I'm boned, I'm boned, shit, 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 shit. And then they grant you a break. And as the video game, uh, as you go up in score and go through different levels, the uh, the 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 integral the intervals where the chase mode lets up gets shorter and shorter. But this gave newcomers like a chance to stay in the fight. It gave it was less stressful than the unblinking march of the space invaders going down. And then you also have, they each uh, have different uh, attack approaches, essentially. Uh, Blinky, the the uh, the red one, is, uh, I'm sorry, the, is it, no, 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 yeah, the red one, mm-hmm. Blinky, is always just chasing after Pac-Man. Pinky and Inky, they're generally trying to position themselves in front of Pac-Man, generally by cornering him. And Clyde goes back and forth from, uh, well, Clyde uh, goes back and forth from chasing to running away, but he's like stupider, right? He'll he's chase sloppier. you, and then when he's within like a couple of units of Pac-Man's location, he will run away and try to avoid you. Uh, but it's still more visual noise. It's still more just stuff to keep track of. What's interesting is in Japan, the characters' names uh, actually give you a hint as to their general strategies. Um, each uh, each character has a set of alternate names that you can operate with a uh, dip switch, I believe, in the original cabinet. But uh, the original Japanese names, uh, Blinky is known as Oikake, uh, which means pursuer, kind of noting his very direct chasing algorithm. Uh, P 
Pinky is Machibuse, which means ambusher, which kind of connotes that he's trying to get ahead of Pac-Man's position. Uh, Kimagure, uh, which is Inky, means the fickle one, which means his algorithm's like a little bit harder to figure out. And uh, Clyde is known as Otobuke, o- Otoboke, which means the dopey one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is great too because Clyde is such a funny name for it as well. Since which it I feel, rhyme with the I feel words. like if you know if you got that much info, especially as a kid, I feel like I would have a better chance of kind of getting into the uh, getting into the game if I like really understood the names with that meaning. Uh, it should be noted that um, the uh, programmer Shigeo Funaki. Uh, Pac-Man was the last game that he ever worked on, but he was integral to fine-tuning and working on these AI I, algorithms responsible for the ghosts uh, for the ghost behavior. Iwatani basically just gave minimal instructions. I be, uh, according to the book, the note was, please have the monster chase the player from all sides instead of simply following from behind like a string of beads, which is like a great response, but you know, this is advanced enemy behavior. This is like completely unknown territory in the world of video game programming. And Funaki should deserve a lot of credit for like mastering this gameplay flow feel of giving each of these ghosts this like very highly tuned um, uh, intelligence. I mean, they're very, it's, it's just math, but what seems like intelligence, you know, ghost in the machine type shit. Uh, other things that kind of help the balance is that Pac-Man is faster around corners. Pas- Pac-Man is faster than Blinky, except when he's eating dots. Then there's a 160th frame delay, which means that if you're running through a full section of the map, uh, Blinky can catch up to you. There's like all these very tiny tweaks that were iterated over and over and over again to get the gameplay feel just right to this point where it is a challenge, it is thrilling, but if you are picking it up for the first time, you still have a fighting chance. And this is... Yeah, especially with the the addition of those energizers, allowing Pac-Man to fight back and eat up the ghosts. And apparently this was inspired by the cartoon Popeye the Sailor Man, in which Popeye, you know, of course, eats his spinach. Uh, He's always getting bullied until he eats his spinach, then he's able to fight back and beat the shit out of the bad guy. So we got the first video game mascot. We got the first uh, power-up. We got the first uh, enemy AI. We got so many revolutionary things. Just because Iwatani was like, Eh, what do girls like? Eh, They like like stuffing their faces. We should make a game about eating for ladies. (laughs) And it actually did take one year and five months to complete the game, which was the longest development process uh, at the time, as far as we know. Um, Then also you have in this game uh, the level 256 glitch. Uh, to give us our kill screen. That was a very interesting... Um, from what I saw, I mean, it's, it's true that it would time... Did they just not even... I mean, they never even got that far in the game yeah. to even know that this was a thing, right? So I mean, essentially it, what happens is... 256 is an integer of eight. It's an 8-bit console. Yeah. You're dealing with, uh, you know, all sorts of hex codes and different programming ephemera that, like, when you get to level 256... You get some. You get a uh, a rollover in the data that like completely blanks out half of the screen, and it's just it's just a standard glitch. It's just a thing they did not think would happen and did not anticipate. But uh, it's 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 I don't know. You know, it's fun. It's fun to look at. Yeah, and it gets to the point. I mean, it's used in a lot of popular cult. It's almost like a Konami code level of. 
inside joke in video games, screen 256, to the point where there is a uh, a Pac-Man runner on mobile uh, that you can play called, uh, what is it exactly, Pac-Man 256, where the actual glitchy wall is chasing Pac-Man. Uh, and that was created by Hipster Whale, who did that Frogger Endless Runner, and it's a lot of fun. One last uh, first that uh, Iwatani and his team introduced in Pac-Man is the cutscene. Yes. The coffee breaks, as they were known in between uh, among the developers, uh, showed short little animations that had, uh, you know, Pac-Man kind of doing some Tom and Jerry shenanigans with the ghosts after you reach certain levels. Uh, I believe there's three in the original game. Um, uh, Originally, uh, the programmers, uh, a guy, one of the programmers, a guy named uh, Iwata Yamashita, uh oh no no wait no 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 not Yamashita shit where is he whatever I'm just gonna tell this anecdote style one of the programmers when uh, asked to make these cutscenes was like why would I do that it's not part of the game I am a game programmer I don't make little cartoons for fanciful boys what do you what do you do? Uh, no I'm not gonna do it and Iwatani had to stress that giving players a coffee break giving them a chance to rest and refresh and be entertained all at the same time, would add to the game's crossover appeal. And, uh, you know, when kind of the bottom line given out, uh, the program was like, okay. And so now we have the cutscene, and we have cutscene as a reward for playing and mastery. You know, how many times have you, like, slogged through the last level of a game you didn't enjoy that much just because you had to watch the little movie at the end? Like, this was a gigantic uh, step forward in game design content as rewards. So Pac-Man is first released in Japan in 1980 and in the US that same year via Bally Midway. Bally Midway started out in slot machines but moved over to te- uh, mechanical arcade games in the 70s and later video games. After they had a ton of success distributing Taito Space Invaders in the US, they decided to team with Namco to bring Pac-Man over to the country as well. So, uh, okay. And they, yeah. So uh, Pac-Man is released in arcades. They do test markets. And it is a okay hit. It is not the crossover smash that uh, Namco wanted it to be. Uh, Namco is still doing fine. Galaxian is doing amazing. Galaga is right around the corner. And it's just chalked up as like a fun little experiment that, you know, paid off its development costs, but, you know, wasn't that big of a deal. Um, Midway, also working with Atari at the time, they released Pong machines. Uh, they worked with Taito and got Space Invaders in America. They understood video games were a big deal. And it was uh, VP Stan Jiraki, who was a champion of bringing in more and more of these Japanese games because uh, they had a giant manufacturing and distribution arm. They actually, all the problems that Namco had with the video game industry and Atari, they didn't have. And Namco was eager to work with a partner that had that level of uh, just sheer manufacturing and distribution muscle behind them. And it was Stan Jiraki that came to the uh, Bally Midway executive team with Galaxian, with Rally X, uh, and a little game known as Puckman. And he had to fight tooth and nail for them to pick up Puckman. They were like, it's too simple. It's what is this cute baby bullshit? Like the executives there knew that Space Invaders was big money and they saw Puckman as just a weird little oddity. They thought it was too Japanese. They just genuinely did not see the appeal in it. And Jiraki basically put his 
money where his mouth was and was like, I'm calling this one in. I I think this is a hit. We're going to do it. And it is an explosive hit for Midway. It is an incredible, like in Japan, they maybe sold 10,000 Pac-Man machines at an era where the arcade industry was booming. Uh, they ended up selling like 132,000 Pac-Man machines in America. Uh, Bally Midway had to up their manufacturing capacity. They had to uh, completely restructure how the cabinets were built because the original specifications from Japan were all in metric and uh, American arcade cabinets were constructed with completely different standards. Um, And it is an incredible thing. One of the things they had to do to localize it is, of course, change the name from Puckman to Pac-Man. And as immortalized in the movie Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, the anecdote is real. They realized that the P in the letter in Puckman could easily get scratched in the middle to create a letter F, thus immortalizing the game Fuckman. And what kind <laughs> of lady, what kind of clean-cut American damsel would sully herself in an arcade and try and play a game called Fuckman. Nobody, that's Miss Pac-Man. Miss Pac-Man here, I'd love to play a game called Fuckman, Jay. Come here, big daddy. Let me show you what I got. Truly an inspiration for women everywhere. I thank you for showing. <laughs> thank you for being here, Miss Pac-Man. <laughs> and so, uh, especially in America, but uh, of course, all over the place, this ends up spurring the first instance of something I think this ever ha- never happened before in the video game space. A ton of merchandise, all sorts of Pac-Man, you know, T-shirts and dolls and all sorts of things. I mean, it really was the first real mascot to come out of games. And that all, of course, uh, it amounts to a top 10 radio hit in 1982. You're about to play in April. Get it queued up called Pac-Man Fever. Hit it! dude doing rails blow playing some pac-man you know what i'm saying slamming down some good old-fashioned american budweiser beers just getting fucking nailed in the bathroom and then going out and playing some pac-man am i right jake i mean we've all had our struggles with pac-man fever everyone's journey is different (laughs) uh i you know i don't find the blow (laughs) necessary but you lost your sense of touch, I believe, is what happened when you got Pac-Man. Oh, favorite. yeah, yeah. No, the carpal tunnel was so severe that I lost all nerve function in my skin. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I have gotten my Pac-Man booster uh, recently mm. as well, just to make sure it never comes back, because I can't have another cocaine addiction. <laughs> or it is, it's, it's, the time has passed. What are we even talking about? What we're talking about is the road to getting to a sequel. Because if you think it was really interesting, this tale we've told, this yarn we've spun up to this point, 
Miss Pac-Man is almost more fascinating how it came together than even Pac-Man itself. Miss Pac-Man, as I said, still holds that all-time sales record for standalone arcade game sold in the U.S. This game, not developed by Namco, not developed by uh, Iwatani. It was... uh, Instead, a team of MIT dropouts. It start, they started a, a company called General Computer Corporation. There was a guy named Steve Golson, uh, credited as the game's lead designer, uh, but also uh, he got the help from a guy named Doug McRae, Kevin Current, Chris Rode, and Mike Horowitz. And it was all just because at their dorm, they had a couple of pinball machines that some vendor had installed. These pinball machines kept getting trashed. So this vendor, this guy decides, hey, fuck this, it's not worth it, and removes the pinball machines from the dormitory so the guys go well we want our pinball machines this could be a good business for us if we just learn how to refurbish them and everything we're on campus so it's like as long as we know how to you know fix them and stuff if they break down we can just do it right here and there or now if it happens they start this business where they put the pinball machines in the dorm uh they managed to get a hold of 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 a couple and uh it's immediately pretty successful for them then they decide to expand it to a few other dorms and uh while they're doing this they're like yeah but as people get really accustomed to the pinball table they kind of end up um slowing down on the usage and they can actually see their profits dip after a certain amount of lifespan of the pinball table existing in any given dorm so that's when they decide to put in atari's missile command and they see their profits skyrocket but again as folks begin to master the game those profits start to dip again and so that's when they get the idea to make their own enhancement kit. Uh, they, that, that's what they called them back in the day. What they would essentially do in an enhancement kit is, is essentially adding to the existing arcade game um, and making it more challenging and therefore making it more of a quarter gobbler while also being way more enga- engaging for the veterans who had quote-unquote mastered Missile Command. So they were back in the, in the arcade playing the shit out of it as now the challenges were much higher and uh, it was much more entertaining for them now, again. How did Atari feel about this? Because it feels like if I'm in the business of making uh, video, selling new arcade machines to various amusement spaces, the idea that a third party can just go in, refresh a cabinet that a client already bought, thus making them not want to buy my next video game offering feels like that would be a uh, gigantic attack on my business model. Oh, lawsuits ensued, my friend. <laughs> lawsuits ensued. I will say really quickly that they end up um they they end up moving off campus to start distributing enhancement kits for different games and they're also seeing Pac-Man taking the US by storm and they decide, "Hey, our next game I think we'll we'll make an enhancement for is uh Pac-Man." Doug McRae said, "We had a Pac-Man cabinet. We played it over and over again trying to say what are its weaknesses? Why are we bored? Why would we uh why would we be a, why would we be able to play for a long amount of time. We realized that Pac-Man had the same kind of issues Missile Command did. People could learn the patterns and play it forever. And then once you played it for a while, it was pretty much the same game. It got a little bit faster, but there was only one maze and nothing really changed. So there, they get to work on iterating on Pac-Man. And while that all is going on, they end up in a legal battle with Atari over Missile Command. However, they were very smart about the way they handled the trademark. These are MIT guys, right? Even, though, even if they're dropouts. And so they did made specific moves 
and their handling of the enhancement kit to essentially uh, make it so Atari's lawsuit wouldn't stand up in a courtroom. And this ends with Atari, actually, this is how baller these guys are, actually ends up hiring them to develop games for the company while also allowing them to make other enhancement kits for other game companies as long as they got permission to do so uh, by said company. And so eventually they end up contacting Midway. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So these are the balls on uh, Computer Corporation or uh, GCC. The day after they settled with Atari, they were in the offices of Midway with a completed uh, Pac-Man conversion kit. Yeah. They had to basically lie their way into Midway. Uh, you know, they were like, uh, hey, weren't you sued? And they were like, uh, actually, uh, we have full permission to do this. Um, that was a little bit, uh, the you know, the terms of it was like, we have permission to do this only if we do it for Atari. Like, it's not like they're operating with impunity. Right. And this is the, this is the best part. Um, uh, when a, uh, Midway Valley executive was like, uh, you know, uh, you know, weren't you guys sued? Uh, they answered back and I quote, they dropped it with pre with prejudice. And we're now selling super missile attack kits again. I'd like to work with you as opposed to against you, but we are prepared to move forward in either case. Yeah, I've, they I've could this... not do that. They could not do that. <laughs> I have this quote from Doug McRae. We told him we were going to produce the enhancement kit with or without them. We'd just like to get their blessing rather than ending up in court with them. Uh, so again, this moxie pays off for GCC and they end up getting to uh, meet with Midway and show them their new game, their sequel to Pac-Man. Everybody knows it. Everybody's aware of it. We're talking crazy auto. Hell yeah. <laughs> crazy auto. Uh, it's America's favorite character with his bulging blue eyeballs and weird spindly <laughs> legs as he fights it's a bunch a of knockoff Muppets with weird, his gross like, girlfriend. Fruit goblins or something <laughs> is what they changed the ghost into. Yeah, so they were definitely working to avoid copyright issues before they had talked to Midway about actually making a real legitimate sequel to Pac-Man. Again, this is a, an enhancement kit, essentially. It's just they're adding to the Pac-Man game. So, uh, but still, copyright involved, they decided change Pac-Man to a little yellow guy with legs and blue eyes uh, named Crazy Otto. And these little, the ghosts were changed to little like fruit bug dudes. And uh, they also did come up with intermissions for this game. Boy meets girl. They chase each other. And then they find love. They did have that going on. Uh, they also uh, decided, you know, the, one of the issues they had with the first game is it's the same maze every time. So this game would feature different mazes. And uh, they would also create a truly random character algorithm. So that those ghost movements were way less predictable. And since they could have... It's an interesting thing because the, the way the conversion kit works is a separate board that uh, takes input from the original board and alters it yes. on a separate piece of machinery. So they are, uh, well, they were thinking at the time, they still got sued and still had to settle, that they aren't actually um, 
altering any of copyrighted code of the original manufacturers. So just adding that little bit of numbered random generation into the existing algorithms did make it more unpredictable. They upped the speed as well. So the uh, game played a lot faster and was more dynamic. And uh, the fruits, the fruits moved and they changed the fruits. There's a pretzel now. There's a pretzel now. They realized that they could uh, have up to six moving objects on the screen. And so that allowed them to have one piece of fruit that was moving around on the screen. So they added that as well. And uh, yeah, so Midway ends up working out a deal where they would give the same royalty money for Pac-Man to Namco that they had been, uh, especially since this was technically Pac-Man, but with an add-on, which is why things get legally weird and a little later on. So, Horowitz said, if you... Horowitz said, if you open up a Ms. Pac-Man, it'll have a Pac-Man board in it with our data card that sits in the processing slot. That's specifically what it is. So Ms. Pac-Man releases in February of 1982. The team ends up making $10 million off it, producing 117,000 units. However, since that time, the ownership of Ms. Pac-Man has gone through a bit of a tug. Okay, wait, wait. Before you get into this... So there's this like legacy, especially with a lot of the legal things that you're going to mention that like uh, Midway did this under Namco's nose that like poor Iwatani and everybody who worked so hard on Pac-Man got screwed over by us shifty Americans. Uh, The fact is, is that throughout the crazy auto process, Namco was actually keyed in every step along the way. Um, It was Stan Jiraki originally that wanted uh, uh, the... Pac-Man to, or I'm sorry, wanted Crazy Auto to be a more direct sequel to Pac-Man. Uh, it was, uh, they were working, uh, Jiraki also uh, decided to change the focus from Crazy Auto or Pac-Man to the Lady Auto that was in the initial uh, cutscenes, then named Anna, turned into Ms. Pac-Man. Uh, Namco president Nakamura actually- Hey, boys. Sorry. Got an early version of the Ms. Pac-Man cabinet, then called Pac-Woman, and she was differentiated by uh, beady blue eyes and a shock of poorly rendered pixel red hair. And it was Nakamura that said, like, uh, the hair looks dumb. You can't like uh, when facing from the back, she looks like one of the ghosts. Change it uh, for more legibility purposes, uh, which is where they, you know, completely did the uh, hair bow and the mole and the lipstick to kind of make it more differentiated. It was one of the GCC developers' wives who actually was a Miz at the time, uh, which was a a real accomplishment. It was an actual, uh, you know, a political statement to not take on your husband's name and to go by Miz at the time. Yeah, it was interesting. Well... Well, at first it was Pac Woman, mm-hmm. and and then they were saying, you know, with Mrs. Pac Man, but because there was such a, fi- a feminist movement going on at the time to allow for Ms. And he even said uh, when they got married, she wanted to keep her own name, and she even said if y- if you switched to my last name, I would change my last name because I want to have a s- my own name. And uh, was the big leader to to make it Miss Pac-Man. The wife of developer Mike Horowitz, Ms. Eileen Malarkey. Unfortunate name for us to tell in a, <laughs> in a uh, story of real people. Uh, believed that calling the character a Mrs. was an inappropriate choice. She proposed that the character endgame should be called Ms. Pac-Man. So Namco was getting all of these updates and was approving them to the point where um, there's a story... 
where Stan Jaraki actually got um, the final production board of Miss Pac-Man in his luggage, ready to take to Japan. And uh, one of the GCC blokes uh, came up to him and was like, hey, we made some last minute changes. What do you think of this? And they showed him uh, an altered cutscene where instead of the stork dropping off a ba- uh, the Pac-Baby to Miss- Mr. and Ms. Pac-Man, uh, the two are uh, just have graphic sex. Graphic, 8-bit, 16-pixel sex. And Jiraki freaked out and was like, "You, what are you, t- what are you doing? You can't do this. What are you, ruining me? And they were like, ah, gotcha. We didn't alter the board in your luggage. And he was like, oh, you boys. <laughs> Feminist icon, Ms. Pac-Man. I, I repeat. Hey, boys. <laughs> Somewhere on an EEPROM chip in Midway's archives is a canonical <laughs> pornography of Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. Jake, I'll show you that scene in just a second, but it's just you and me, all right? Boys, I'm feminist icon, Miss Pac-Man. Ta-ta! Miss Pac-Man is a <laughs> indelible part of the Pac-Man legacy. She's featured in the cartoon. She's featured in sequels. She's featured in merchandise. And the weird little problem is, is that her rights are technically shared between Midway and GCC and Namco in a convoluted kind of uh, weird network of copyright mccrae from the mit team says who owns the rights to miss pac-man is a very very complicated issue miss pac-man was originally created as a derivative work on pac-man the whole concept of derivative works i don't think was ever really uh was ever heavily fleshed out in the intellectual property law uh this led to a court battle of course between gcc namco and midway which sorted everything out for at least quite some time however the old guarded namco died away things changed there no one got the memo namco decides we're putting out this uh like anniversary co-cabinet of galaga and miss pac-man and gcc calls them up is like hey what the fuck we already settled all this in court like this you have to like run this by us at the very least and no one at the company realized that a group uh, and at this japanese company realized that a group of M- mit dropouts in america are actually the ones responsible for miss pac-man they were like dumbfounded everyone was just like what the fuck because just enough time it passed it was like 20 years later or something like that so then they have to go back to court and uh nail some things down as well. Horowitz said, to this day, Namco does not publicly acknowledge that Miss Pac-Man was created outside of Japan. Toro Iwatani, the creator of Pac-Man, declines to comment on the very popular American-made spinoff of his game. I have tried to contact Iwatani about this issue since 2011, and I have received no response, unfortunately, for for them. So it is, it's a sticky thing. It's a weird, yeah, it's a weird situation. The situation with GCC and Ms. Pac-Man has actually gone back into the news recently as uh, more and more Namco products and uh, re-releases and tie-ins have been coming out that explicitly replace Ms. Pac-Man with new characters. Uh, Depending on the venue and the design, there was a Pac-Man anniversary pop-up store that uh, introduced a new character called Pac-Lady with a ponytail that is uh, distinctly different from Ms. Pac-Man. Pac-Lady! Yeah, I remember Pac-Lady. In in April of this year, 2022, a uh, Switch release of Pac-Land had altered pixel art it got rid of the original Ms. Pac-Man and replaced it with a character called Pac-Mom with a different outfit and different uh, uh, pixel art. So, like, the 
the status of Ms. Pac-Man as a uh, enduring member of the Pac-Man coterie is now in danger. And I don't know if it's going to get resolved anytime soon. We blew past a lot. I mean, a lot of weird sub games that kind of shuffled through the mix. I cannot get into. There's a bagillion. I would like to highlight a few other Pac-Man games. Exactly what I was about to do next as well, Jake. But of course, there's so many little iterations on the original formula and all these different that we can't name them all or get into that. You I mean you can play Pac-Man on everything? That's kind of the idea, right? I love the little portable Miss Pac-Man mm-hmm. that I think it was Cal- Calico or so. It's it's like that little guy. I remember uh, enjoying that a lot. Um, of course, like the table version of Pac-Man mixed in with uh, Galaga and stuff like that. Always great. But yeah. I mean, essentially, the the next thing I wanted to talk about, of course, is the historically terrible, we already mentioned it, uh, Pac-Man port to the Atari 2600, programmed by a guy named Todd, and in uh, a six-month turnaround, just one guy, uh, that's where Atari was at back in the day, kind of what caused the death of the console business for a while at home. The pellets were replaced with wafers. The maze, just look it up if you haven't seen it before. The maze is like really super simplified and just bad. Just bad. How you can make a maze so bad, I don't know, but it's bad. The Atari console was never meant to support multiple sprites on screen. We talked about it in our Activision episode. Like the Atari hardware basically only knows paddle and ball. Like that is all it's built to do. Uh, so the ghosts are constantly flickering in and out of existence because the processor literally can't handle displaying all the ghosts on screen at once. Um, it's just a genuinely disappointing and poorly uh, made port that, you know, Atari literally made more copies of that game than there were like Atari uh, 2600 sold. They went hard. They tried to make it like National Pac-Man Day mm-hmm. upon release. And they sold a lot of units, but then a lot of people lost a ton of trust in Atari after that. Right. So it was like great for the one turnaround. And then the one-two punch was then E.T. coming out being as bad, if not worse. But yeah, I mean, it's just so it's just so clearly not the the product that people came to know and love. And in fact, making it it, it does it's I'm, I pulled it up again just to like talk about it a little bit. It, it really does the opposite of what made the original Pac Man so successful, which I think was the simplicity and the of the of the color format, mm-hmm. right? It deadens all of the colors. In fact, and when the ghosts, uh, when he hits the power up, the ghosts start flashing in like a really like obnoxious way. That's just everything about it is not pleasing to the eye. They even found them a way again, like not to tarp on the maze too much, but they even found a way to make the maze just like unpleasing to look at, even even though it's just a maze. It's just the whole thing. It's brown and burnt and just supposedly crappy. that was a directive from Atari's like official design bible that you could not have a black background on a game unless it was explicitly set in space. So okay, I that is I that someone from the uh, Discord mentioned that, and I found that an amazing little chunk of information. Yeah, just awful. Yeah, it's for sure. Midway came out with a bunch of weird other things like uh, the hybrid pinball video game. Uh, uh, I don't know, abominations, Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man and baby Pac-Man. Uh, Namco finally went for a real sequel with Super Pac-Man, which I think is actually a very fun and engaging game, but it just 
uh, is not as it, it just did not uh, pick up at all. Uh, Pack and Pal introduced the friendly ghost Miru, but that was also kind of didn't frustrating and didn't go anywhere. Midway had the trivia game Professor Pac-Man uh, that was also uh, terrible. Junior Pac-Man, which had an ultra wide uh, uh, maze that you had to scroll through. Not great. Uh, Pac-Land in 1984 was actually a revolutionary game. Uh, that was a result of Namco developers watching the Hanna-Barbera American cartoon and going, yeah, why can't we make a video game that's more like a cartoon? And it had this beautiful, bright, uh, graphically amazing amount of animation and sprite work at the time, but it was extremely frustrating to play. Um, that being said, it was a lot of people point to it as the original side scroller and even Shigeru Miyamoto uh, points at it as a early influence for what Super Mario Brothers would about to be. Um, Pac-Man lays low for a couple of years, but comes back with Pac-Mania, which I think is uh, w- that's the version of Pac-Man I first played. And I was completely just floored by its 3D like graphics and um, also maybe the best piece of music in all of Pac-Man history. Uh, April, if you could, uh, from the Pac-Mania soundtrack, Pac-Man's Park, oh, the hype. Uh, I think I think what the, one of the cooler ones is Pac-Man Championship Edition, released in 2007 on consoles. Had the uh, involvement of Toru Iwatani. The game ups the speed and iterates on the maze design. It makes it that big, crazy, like scrolling uh, widescreen. Uh, that one I actually picked up recently and really, really fa- found it was a fun, slightly more modernized game uh, version of Pac-Man that didn't like take away from. Uh, entirely, you know, what Pac-Man's all about, which is, I think, what's so important. Because that's the hard thing with the game. I think that's why it's so difficult. Like, the 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 fundamentals of Super Mario, I think, were just a lot more obvious and easy to iterate on as consoles and arcade technology evolved. Whereas Pac-Man, because it's so simple and so just perfect in its original form... It becomes, therefore, really hard to be like, all right, now, how, what do we do with this for, like, a PlayStation 4? You know, well, like, how do we, you know? The uh, answer to that is throughout the 2000s uh, and the uh, late 90s, uh, Namco kept putting out Pac-Man World games. Yes. Which were yes, the I wanted to talk kind about of that. this, uh, it was done by, uh, originally by a lot of, like, 16-bit veterans. Uh, Tommy Tellerico did the music if you're a nerd enough to be impressed by a Tommy Tellerico drop, uh, they were fine that, uh, you know, for people with the PlayStation, it was their answer to Mario 64 for a lot of people. Yeah, and I never played it, and I always wanted to uh, because I loved those types of games. I love 3D platformers, especially during that time. But I will say, I, I you know, even though I hadn't played it, it seemed like a lot of fun, and uh, they it seems like they did a good job of, like, bringing Pac-Man to the 3D platformer. While also, I feel like, um, you know, even in, in uh, like Smash Brothers and stuff like that, they they use some of the design concepts and mm-hmm. stuff from from these Pac Man World games and like the the, the Pac Man we kind of know and love today 
on posters and things like a lot of times is like derived from the Pac-Man world uh, protagonist look. I mean, for sure. That look is actually really faithful to the original illustrations uh-huh. done for the uh, Japanese arcade cabinet done by a legendary graphic designer at Namco whose name I've absolutely forgotten. And I feel bad about it. <laughs> Tertiary acknowledgement for Pac-Man 2, the new adventures for Super Nintendo and Genesis. One of the most frustrating, horrible games in the history of mankind, uh, known in Japan as Hello Pac-Man. It involved uh, a auto, like, like a independent Pac-Man on screen walking through what I can only describe as a point and click adventure from hell as you couldn't just say, hey, Pac-Man, pick this up or hey, Pac-Man, look at this. You had to hit stuff with a slingshot and hope that that would get the character to acknowledge what you're doing. Like they've done angry video game nerd videos on it. It's one of the most notoriously just rage inducing games of all time. Um, don't like it. Don't like it. Don't like it at all. <laughs> In 2013, our boy Avi Arad. That's right. That's right. Venom's dad. <laughs> I'm sorry. Venom's movie dad, Avi Arad, uh, successfully produced an updated Pac-Man uh, TV show as well as video games called Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures, which aged down Pac-Man, completely got rid of Ms. Pac-Man and Pac-Baby, added the weird emo goth Pac-Man girl, uh, Cylindria, and was basically Namco trying to cash in on the what they thought would be the sonic boom-boom of the 2010s. Uh, it's, not, it's not a great show. It's not, the games are kind of, it's just, it's just for kids. It's just using Pac-Man as a fill-in children's mascot. Jake, it's me. It's Miss Pac-Man. Why won't you love me, Jake? Why won't you leave him for me, Jake? Please. Uh, my heart's been stolen by you and I can't get it back. Listen, I love your classical Hollywood beauty. I love you, the fact that you're an independent feminist. I love the fact that you're 90% mouth. But I'm afraid we're just from two different worlds and you're uh, just, uh, I, I, you know, it's better that we just think about what could have been than ruin what we have. Fine, but you haven't seen the last of me. I'm going to hunt you down like a dog, like the filthy dog you are. And I'm going to gut you from neck to cock stump and you're going to bleed out until you die, Jake Young. And that's a Miss Pac-Man guarantee. Bye now. Not even a Wagga Wagga. Not even <laughs> in your head. Hey, wait, wait. In your head. Hey, what's the noise Ms. Pac-Man makes when she moves? Um, all right. We don't have to get into split airs about the noise she Pac-Man makes. Pac-Man 99, available currently for Switch, a Battle Royale game. Check it out. Get into it. Uh, yeah, that's also cool. I have a really great quote uh, from Iwatani to close things out. Do you have anything you want to say before I give good quote. Nah, I just shout out to Pac-Man Birth of an Icon. It covers way more than we covered in this episode. It's a beautiful book. It is full of in-depth interviews and really, if if you're like, yeah, man, I, f- I give a shit about Pac-Man, this is definitely uh, a way to satisfy that curiosity. There you go. I'd, uh, All right. Yeah. There it is. I love it. It is. It is. Uh, it will always be a part of me. Pac-Man and Pac-Man's legacy. Iwatani had this to say on what it takes to be a successful game designer. You must understand people's souls, Kokoro, and be creative enough 
to imagine things that can't be thought or imagined by others. You must be compelled to do something a little bit different than the rest of the crowd and enjoy being different. You must also be able to visualize the images that will make up the game, and you shouldn't compromise with the first easy idea that comes to mind. And the last analysis, you must enjoy making people happy. That's the basis of being a good game designer and leads to great game design. Love that quote. Really, really cool. And I love that he's not technically based in games. So he really is just purely approaching it all as a designer. Great stuff. Awesome, awesome thing to get to learn about this week. I knew I'd always wanted to do Pac-Man. Such a fundamental for us, such a heavy hitter for us. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to follow us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. $5 a month, you get bonus weekly episodes from Jake and I, uh, where we talk about different things going on currently in the news as it pertains to like fun stuff like video games and anime and MCU and shit like that. Uh, we also talk take a year in media and pick it apart. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So check that out. Also at the ten dollar, fifteen dollar layer. Rather, you can join us on Sundays for the study Sunday study session. We played a bunch of Pac Man this past Sunday. It was super fun. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. Check me out. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. That's Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams. You'll love it, child. Fuck. That was a bad sell. But you'll love it, child. Jake! How are you doing, person listening to the episode, even though you know the plugs and you've, you've, you've no, normal people would like switch off by now? I, I'm fascinated by you. You are such a divine creature in my eyes. I really just... They're, this is what's happening right now. This happens to me all the time. They're literally... You're washing the dishes right now, and you it's the exact moment the episode's ending, and so you definitely are, have made the decision, well, I don't want to dry off my mm-hmm. hands mm-hmm. and get all the way over to the phone and make the... You know what I mean? It's a whole deal, so I'll just, I'll just wait it out, and it'll autoplay the next episode of whatever's on my queue. Well, before that happens, let me just say that I appreciate <laughs> you, and I think you're a beautiful creature, and even when life can get hard. I know you're strong enough and I believe in you. Follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young and uh, check out the Puppet Jared channels on Twitch and YouTube. Uh, the, 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 the flagship stream is the Cartoon Dumpster Thursdays. We watch old cartoons. We make fun of them. It is a blast. But other than that, have a great day. And until next time, keep on whizzing. And never stop bruising! This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio... And producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.